you know that success tends to divide people and failure tends to coalesce people. If somebody says, I was so successful, what do most people do? Well, they'll, they'll say, um, I'm not sure I was as successful as that person. Or, I'm more successful. Success tends to breed competition. Failure tends to coalesce people. Because when somebody admits a failure, somebody else can say, been there, done that, and now you have a fellowship of people who have encountered struggles and failures in their life, and you encounter something called grace. Well, we want to talk about how to rise up after failure this morning, and I want to whet your appetite for this by having you think about certain people. Think about J.K. Rowling. Uh, she spent many years as a single mom in little coffee shops in England, no hope for a future, and she was scribbling out longhand stories about magicians and wizards. You think she had any future? Probably not. When she gave the commencement address at Harvard University in 2008, she said something very interesting. Um, she said, failure meant stripping away all the essentials. I stopped pretending I was anything other than what I was, a failure. And I began to direct all my energies at finishing the only work to ma that mattered to me. Had I succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed. She said, hitting rock bottom became the foundation for everything that happened later. She's now worth a billion dollars. Uh, failure to success. There was character there. Think about Abraham Lincoln. I won't read through all of those famous failures. But Lincoln was a spectacular failure before he became a success. In fact, really, being elected president was probably the first success he really had had. Or think about these two guys. Uh, Walt Disney uh, failed at several businesses before he established his empire. John Grisham wrote his first novel, sent it off to something like 16 publishers, it was rejected, sent it off to more agents, it was rejected. 27 times he was rejected for his first novel. But you can't imagine going anywhere around the world at a bookstore and not seeing a Disney product or a John Grisham product. What was the failure all about? It established a baseline of character leading toward success. You'd never call Michael Jordan a failure, but here's what Michael Jordan said. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost over 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. Now, all of these folks succeeded apart from the supernatural. Uh, but here's what I find amazing. What I find amazing is that when you look at the cross, you see the apparent failure of the Son of God, the apparent failure of the Son of God. And I, I hope you can envision him suspended above the earth on that cross. And in a very real sense, he is the reject of everybody. God above rejecting his son while his son is paying the penalty for his sins. The people below rejecting Jesus, shouting abuse at him. The criminals on either side 
hurling abuse at him as well, as well before the one changes his heart. He seems like a complete failure. Saturday after Good Friday seems like a time of lamenting a terrible failure. And yet what happened on Sunday morning is our paradigm that no failure is fatal, no failure is final, and the failure may even be the thing that gives you the character for success. Not just in the natural, because some people get successful in the natural because of character, but in the supernatural. Because what Jesus aims to do is impart his supernatural resources so that you rise up after failure. What I, what I find uh, really interesting about this is that Jesus said, you know, unless I go away, the Holy Spirit's not going to come. We have the resources of the risen Christ. We have the resources of the Holy Spirit. And the story we want to look at this morning is the story of Jesus restoring Peter after failure. And the key idea I want to give you is this. We rise up after failure by immediately moving back under the loving lordship of Jesus. When you encounter any failure, be it large or small, the way you begin to rise up after that failure is by immediately moving back under the loving lordship of Jesus. And that's going to happen in John 21 in four dimensions. And the first dimension is going to be our work. It's going to be our work. And so here's what we see in John 21. It's the story of, of Peter being restored after failure. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called a twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Now, <clears throat> as the day was breaking, um, Jesus, uh, they, they're, um, you know, they, they see Jesus, but what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting the failure of operating apart from his supernatural resources. So let's, let's, let's think about this for a second. Jesus is reminding the disciples during the whole time of his resurrection appearances, he's reminding them that, um, that what, they, what they have to do, I'm sorry here, I'm, I'm flipping around here, they have to trust him while he is showing up or not showing up. So this is a transition time. So sometimes Jesus shows up and they can talk to him face to face. Other times, he doesn't show up. And what Jesus wants his disciples to do is to learn how to pray to Jesus when he's not there. In fact, he told them that in the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What was that saying to the disciples? Look, even during these resurrection appearances, what I want you to do is begin to trust me when I'm invisibly present with you. Does that make sense? Now, I don't think it made a lot of sense to those disciples at first. It's like they, they liked the physical because they could depend upon him in the physical. But when he was not there, how do you depend on somebody invisibly who's not physically present but spiritually present? What Jesus is teaching is how to live in his invisible presence. 
That's the goal for you as well. How do I live in the invisible presence of the resurrected Jesus? So what should Peter have done on this particular day? Peter should have said, I think, guys, um, we're going to go fishing. But Jesus told us that he's with us always, so let's commit this fishing expedition that we're going to do right now to him. Nothing wrong with fishing, right? Paul sometimes went back to his profession of tent making to make ends meet. The disciples were perfectly free to go back and go fishing to make their ends meet. Nothing wrong with fishing. But the problem was, how do you depend upon the invisible resources of Jesus as you do your work? They weren't doing that. They weren't doing that. And the reason why I think is that these guys were emotional wrecks. They had all denied, when Peter denied Jesus three times, they had all fled, and they haven't totally dealt with the problem of their being AWOL on crucifixion day. And so they just don't know where they totally stand with Jesus, Peter, Peter especially. So they work all night long without divine guidance. All night long, they're casting their nets, bringing them in. Casting their nets, bringing them in. Casting the nets, bringing them in. One hour goes by, two hours goes by, eight hours goes by, and they don't get any fish. Now, while this was happening, Peter should have remembered something. Luke chapter 5 took place 18 months earlier. Luke chapter 5, Jesus and Peter are out in the boat. Jesus says, Peter, let your nets down. Peter, this is my paraphrase, says, Jesus, you do the preaching, I'll do the fishing. We fished all night, the fish aren't biting. But if you say so, I'll go ahead and do it. He throws the nets in, and the fish zoom into the nets. The nets are full. He calls the rest of the fleet to come in. Guys, come help me. Their nets are full. Their boats are now sinking. Now, what does that say? It says that Jesus is sovereign over our work. On this night um, in John 21, Peter should have said, wait a second, wait a second. I remember that when we trusted Jesus, he made our work effective. We need to do that right now. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. And all night long, they labor without reference to Jesus' lordship. Now Jesus shows up um, with, um, in, in the morning, and uh, verse 4, uh, as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the water, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, and Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered, no. He said, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Now, that's incredible because Jesus is reminding them, hey, I was with you spiritually all night long. I was with you. You could have trusted me. It would have been good had you trusted me, but I was with you all night long. He wants them to trust in his spiritual presence. Now, let me just pause for a second and say that same thing applies to you. The same thing applies to you. Jesus wants to be sovereign over your work. No matter how much you love or hate your work, no matter how much success or failure you feel in your work, he wants to be with you 
working beside you, spiritually present, while you do whatever God has called you to do. Now, Jesus' confrontation to them is the same confrontation he would make to us. Notice his confrontation to them. Children, do you have in the fi- any fish? Literally, he's saying, hey, hey, you kids, do you have any minnows? Hey, you novices, do you have any little fish? Do you? It is a pointed but loving confrontation. Pointed because he wants them to work in his power. Loving because this is a mixture of love and confrontation here. And instantly, they get it. And John says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord recognizing uh, the Lordship. So they work eight hours without reference to the Lordship of Christ. Now they're going to work maybe a half hour under the Lordship of Christ. And verse 6, it says, he said, cast it to the side, you will find some. They couldn't haul in the fish. Verse 8, the disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. They were not able, they were, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards, 100 yards off. Now, if you think about how these guys were situated, they're working about a half an hour under the Lordship of Christ, and the fish, like Luke 5, are zooming into this net in John chapter 21. The lesson is, is really clear. After any sort of failure, God wants us to immediately place ourselves back under his lordship, and that begins with our work. It begins with our work. And I want you to envision Jesus as your ultimate boss. The person who's your boss is not your ultimate boss. Jesus is your ultimate boss. And if you have had any sort of failure, you begin by reestablishing your work under his lordship. Now you think, why work? I mean, why would you start with work? Where do you spend the bulk of your time? Where do you spend more time than with your family, than in recreational pursuits? You spend it at work. So you're taking where you spend most of your time and saying, I'm going to commit this under the lordship of Christ, and I'm going to live and I'm going to work with reference to his constant spiritual presence. One friend of mine had encountered a spectacular failure within his family. It was, it was bad. It was bad. He said, this is what I started doing. I set my iPhone every hour on the hour for my entire workday. I set my iPhone to give me an alarm, a quiet alarm, and every hour on the hour during my workday, I had a, a little card and on that card had five things I was praying for. And that simple exercise, within a month, began to radically shift my attitude toward my work, and it radically shifted my attitude toward my family. He says, I began to work with reference to Jesus in regard to my work. He said, it didn't make me ultimately immediately successful, but he said, I brought a different self into my work And because I brought a different me into my work, it brought a new culture into my department. And that began to change a lot of things for me after a season 
of pretty spectacular failure. After any sort of failure, Jesus wants you to take your work and set it under his lordship so that he can do with you what he wants to do with regard to his work. I talked to somebody recently who had gone through a pretty difficult situation, and they had a breakthrough this past week. And this person said, you know, that breakthrough is all God. It is all God. It's all God. Because my stress drove me to prayer. And as I prayed, I saw God's hand in some new ways. So we begin with our work. Now we go to the second thing that happens, the second dimension of seeing the resurrection as our power to rise up out of failure. We go from work now to worship. We go from work to worship. And at this point, we go from the lordship of Christ to the love of Christ, and we pick up the story here in verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the seat. That sounds very weird that you would do that, right? Like you think, I know I'm ripping off my, my flowing clothes and I'm diving into the sea so I can swim. Well, in the ancient world, you didn't do that. Uh, in the ancient world, forms of nakedness, even modest forms of nakedness, were totally taboo. So if you had your gym shorts on or your swimming suit on, you could not appear in public that way. You had to put on your robes. Now, what they would do is they would take their robes and they would pull them up under their belt so that they weren't dragging you know, in the water. But that's, that's how they did things back then. Then drop down to verse 9. When all the disciples got to land, they saw charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so too with the fish. Now, Jesus is inviting them to a worship meal. It's a worship meal. And in this worship meal, it it begins with Peter's passion to get that one-on-one time with Jesus so that he can get his heart right. Now, I want you to think of this. This is the actual place where this breakfast took place. The church was not there. (laughs) That was built later. But this is the actual spot where Jesus had breakfast with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Now, how do you feel about swimming from where that picture is taken uh, to the beach with your big, long, heavy, flowing robes on? Peter must have been a very good swimmer, a very strong swimmer, And the Sea of Galilee is not always that calm. Sometimes it's a lot more more crazy. So Peter sees Jesus at the shore. He readjusts his now very wet robes, and he wants to get one-on-one time with Jesus. What he wants to say is, Jesus, can can we deal with the denial thing that happened? I don't know where I stand with you. But Jesus doesn't do that yet, and you know why? Worship precedes confession. Confession is good, but worship precedes confession. And when Peter crawls up in the shore, I can just imagine wanting to confess. And instead, worship precedes confession. Okay. Now, 
Let's pause for a second and apply this. The first step after failure is to realize Jesus doesn't hate you. Jesus is not mad at you. Jesus' anger has already been satisfied by his death on the cross. That's called the word propitiation. Propitiation is a big word with a simple meaning. It means God the Father is satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. Jesus' sacrifice removed all guilt. God will never be mad at you. He's not mad at you now. He, he never will be mad at you ever in the future. He is pleased with you right now. That's what's contained in the word propitiation. And proof of this is that Jesus is inviting them to a communal meal where Jesus can celebrate with them and love them and enjoy them. Proof of the fact that he's not mad is the fact that he invites them to this meal where they can enjoy a season of worship. Here's, here's Peter, you know, P Peter swimming like Michael Phelps, trying to get to the shore. I got to take care of this thing. And before Peter can deal with his denials, Jesus invites them to a season of warm, loving, fresh worship. That's pretty cool. So, uh, verse 9, when the rest of the disciples go to the land, they see a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Wonderful supernatural event. Where'd the fish come from? Jesus. The old Sunday school answer, right? How'd that fish get there? I wish I, I, we had a movie of this. I can see Jesus going, you come. And that fish flies out of the, out of the sea and gets on the fire. I, I don't know how it came, whether he, he, he put his hand under the shore and said, come on, come on, you're coming here. Come on, come on. Uh, it was supernatural. Where did uh, the fire come from? Um, well, Jesus had a, he had, I mean, he had a Gerber fire starter kit, right? You might have, I'm, am, I'm Amazon, right? You get the sparks going, you know? No, uh, Jesus, you know, the one who appeared in the burning bush can certainly start a fire in the Sea of Galilee. The one who was represented by the pillar of fire over the temple can certainly start a fire in the Sea of Galilee. And where'd the bread come from? Again, he didn't have to go to the bakery. Uh, guys, I don't have any money. Like, I've just been resurrected. <laughs> I don't have any money. So uh, can you, can I, can I get some bread off you? I'll pay back. No, th this was a miracle. The one who is the manna who's come down from heaven can certainly create bread for breakfast on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. But here's the, here's the interesting thing. There are over eight, well, there used to be over 18 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee, but the three main ones were sardines, tilapia, and a fish called biney. And St. Peter's fish up there that you see on the screens is a, a species of tilapia. It's much smaller than the biney, which are a species of carp. Now, we don't think about carp as being tasty fish, but in the, old, in the New Testament times, these were regarded as a great delicacy, and they were big fish. And we find out that Jesus most likely caused biney to come in to that net. Biney were used for celebratory, special sorts of meals. He gets the special fish to go into this uh, particular 
place. Um, now, um, <clears throat> Jesus, um, you know, tells him, I want you to worship. I want you to worship. I'm, I'm inviting you to a communal meal. I want you to worship. And that's true of you after you've sinned or fallen away or failed. Jesus says in Revelation 3, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. And I'm assuming the knocking comes because we've shut the door on Jesus' face. We've said, I'm working without reference to you right now, Jesus. Check you later. We're working without reference to Jesus. The door is shut. And, and Jesus just knocks, knocks on the door. Standing at the door, I'm knocking. Um, if you hear my voice, so he's knocking and he's calling, both, um, and open the door, I will come into into him and chastise him. Is that what it says? I will shame you if you open the door. I will say, how dare you shut the door on me? No, no, it's not it. No, when the door is opened, there's a fellowship time. There's a a communal meal that takes place of worship even before the confession takes place. Worship precedes, precedes confession. And when you come and you demonstrate that fresh faith, faith it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty awesome. Um, now, I think we, we have a potential problem. In the midst of this warm fellowship, Peter does something weird. It's weird. And, and here's, here's what he does. Um, um, I, I think this would have been very irritating to the rest of the disciples. Jesus asks for some of their fish. So what does Peter do? Verse 11. Simon Peter went aboard the fishing boat and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now when Jesus, when Peter did this, I can imagine the disciples rolling their eyes like, oh brother, oh, that is so Peter. These disciples were having a hard time hauling this net in because there were so many, right? So what does Peter do? He marches himself right down to that boat. He grabs that net, puts it over his shoulder, and brings it up to the fire and lays it down there. What the disciples couldn't do, he does. Brother, Peter does it again. Peter does it again. You know, um, in, in, the, uh, in the Navy SEALs, there is this acronym called BTF. Big, tough frogman. It's both a noun and a verb. Uh, BTF, Navy SEALs are sometimes called frogmen. Okay, so BTF is a verb. It means we're going to go, we're going to BTF it down to that building. We're going to blow some stuff up, and we're going to BTF it back. We're going to big frogman down to that building, blow some stuff up, and BTF it back. And now here's Peter BTFing it down to the boat. Big, tough fisherman down to the boat, picking that thing up and, and going back with it. Peter was, uh, he was ripped. If, if he had had his shirt off, you'd think, this guy could be on Muscle and Fitness magazine covers. I mean, he is very strong, very powerfully built. He's a big guy, and now he's showing off. So does, does Jesus say, Peter, you show off. I mean, here we are worshiping, and you got to do a stupid thing like, like that. Uh, does Jesus chastise him for that? No, no. Because the truth is, even our unconscious sins get covered by the blood of Christ. 
We can do stupid things, even coming out of failure. And even those are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. What Jesus, what, what he wants most is worship. And if we, if we just worship, he can, he can change us. So I, want, I just want you to imagine the scene. You've got this, got this crackling fire. You've got the disciples around. You've got the presence of Jesus. And they're quiet before him, worshiping him. Worship becomes the context where Jesus transforms you after failure. He wants you to place your work under his lordship. He wants you to come to him and worship after failure. That brings us to a third thing, relationships with others. After failure, you deal with your work, you deal with your worship, you also have to deal with relationships. Deal with relationships. So let me tell you the story about about what happens next. Um, What happens next is that Peter gets formally restored to his leadership over the the disciples. Uh, Jesus could have just pronounced Peter forgiven if he wanted to. Could have just done that could have said, you're forgiven, Peter, let's not, let's, let's, not, let's not worry about it. Instead, what Jesus does is he sets up a scenario that is the opposite of his denials. Denials happen, and then the affirmations happen. So take, take a look at the chart. Peter's denials took place in anger. His affirmations get to be uttered in love. Peter's denials take place at night. His affirmations are in the morning. Peter's denials take place in front of enemies. Now they're his affirmations in front of friends. His denials took place before a charcoal fire. His affirmations take place in front of a fire. His denials did not include a meal. <laughs> there was no fellowship that night for sure. His affirmations now take place in front of a meal. His denials resulted in shame. Remember, he wept bitterly after he denied Christ three times. His affirmations re- result in public forgiveness and grace in front of the disciples. Uh, on the night that the denials took place, Satan was sifting him on the day of his affirmations. The Son of God is reinstating him as the leader of the, of the disciples. Now, what I want to say to you is that what Jesus does when he asks the three questions, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter three times says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. What's happening is that Jesus is allowing him to feel forgiven. Feel forgiven. Jesus loves, he loves the context of, of the tangible and the visceral. He wants us to feel that forgiveness in a very, very deep way. This is an amazingly gracious way for him to do this. When you take a look at that picture on the screens and you see those disciples who were there, how do you think Peter felt? I mean, all five senses are being encountered. He smells the smoke of the, of, the, of the fish, the meal. He sees the loving face of Jesus. He hears the gracious words of Jesus. He felt the quiet spring breezes. Jesus is allowing him to feel the forgiveness with all five of those senses. Anytime Peter felt a little bit guilty about the denials, you know, that denial incident that took place in my life, he remembers powerfully and tangibly, I was forgiven. But it's not just Peter who's forgiven. Because every one of the rest of the disciples also encountered forgiveness here as well. They also bolted. They were also AWOL. They also denied him in the sense that they weren't there. And in that sense, they also are encountering forgiveness. 
What this is, is it's a culture of honor, a culture of honor. And after failure, you need a place that has a culture of honor. I will tell you, my passion for Grace Community Church is that this place would be a culture, would have a culture of honor for people who've encountered failure. No condescension, no shame, but the honor that comes from all of us saying, you know, such were some of us. Such were some of us. You're with friends here. We're, we're, we're all redeemed sinners. We all have stories. And that culture of honor is a culture where grace and truth can be applied to your situation. We're not going to gloss over sin. By the same token, we're going to be extraordinarily gracious for those who are in pain over their sin. Jesus just created a culture of honor. And the discipline that we as a church want to manifest corporately is this culture of honor. where We honor the story and the journey that people are, are on. I love, I love this idea, you know, this grace-truth paradigm. Now we look, move to the final dimension. We talk about work, worship, relationships with others, now a relationship with ourselves.